industrial is an asset class where primarily you're looking at very large buildings with very large floor plans with mostly single or very few tenants. So when you're purchasing a building in industrial, the risk is extremely high if you don't have the literal best tenant available sitting in that space. This is your daily real estate syndication show, and I'm your host, Dina Berg. Join me today in a second episode with our guest, Nick D'Angelo. Today, Nick is going to discuss how they consider market selection in light of international and geopolitical trends, including what's happening in China, what's happening in Mexico, and how that is affecting trade. Did you know that also affects market selection for great profitable real estate? Listen to Nick's thoughts on this. It's a great show. We're back today with our second episode with Nick D'Angelo of Saint Investment out of California. And if you listen to our previous show, Nick pontificates very wisely on what is unfolding in the economic backdrop of today in light of investments. Many of you, our listeners, are passive investors, active investors, and so we always want to add value. So we wrapped up our show, the previous show, discussing who the rising stars in this moment in time are and will be on into, I mean, Nick, I'll let you talk about the runway for that, um, but two rise to the top specifically, what are those, Nick? Oh, I think without a doubt, if you look at the commercial real estate sector today, the absolute winners, even with the stumbling blocks that they've had, the winners are multifamily and industrial. Tell me why. I couldn't agree more. And I love what you said in the previous show. Maybe we can give a little fast forward summary about the reshoring of industry, but love to hear you catch us up to why those two are the strongest asset classes. Absolutely. So commercial real estate has made a lot of headlines and not for good things recently. But here's what people are missing is that the first is that multifamily as a sector is already privileged. It gets government debt. It has all kinds of structures that make multifamily such an advantageous asset class. It also gets a lot of attention. So what people fail to realize is that industrial has performed almost as good as multifamily in many markets. And in some markets, it's performed better because of where we sit economically in the current environment throughout the U.S. and with trade internationally. So it's a different calculus to figure out what markets and what drivers exist in the industrial world. But we lean into that heavily. Like we mentioned, you know, we talked at length in the previous episode, there's a ton of good economic information out there that we lean into so that to make our decisions with industrial real estate investing. That's good. One of my favorite discussions about investment is market analysis. So I would love for you to talk. I have the multifamily background on market selection, but like we talked about, it goes hand in hand with other industries. So tell us how you look at market analysis what are some of the non-negotiables? What are some of the red flags? How do you decide where you're going to invest? And what time frame do you consider when looking at markets? Fantastic question. Some of my favorite questions, as a matter of fact. So let's jump in. So industrial, <laughs> like you said, I'm positive you guys have layers and layers and layers of drivers that you look into for multifamily. Here are some of the big ones for industrial. Industrial is an asset class where primarily you're looking at very large buildings with very large floor plans with mostly single or very few tenants. 
So when you're purchasing a building in industrial, the risk is extremely high if you don't have the literal best tenant available sitting in that space. So whereas if you have 200 tenants in a building, there's a degree of balancing. Hey, we got sure. a bad tenant. Whoopsie. Or even risk mitigation. Tenants. Sure. That's not industrial. So the way you diversify an industrial is with a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So that's how you put that together. At, you know, at Saint, we have dozens of industrial deals that we've done successfully. We've never lost money, thank God. Uh, but we have to be very careful with our selection and how and why. The drivers that we're looking for are twofold. One is we look at warehouse distribution. That's one model that we look at. You're looking at huge open floor plans, lots of roll-up doors, lots of docks for uh, 18 wheelers, kind of that model where things are shipped in for out of, from out of country or from mm -hmm. other parts of the country to a warehouse and they're distributed out of that warehouse. So the drivers of that primarily, you're going to be looking at international trade. So what we're looking for, it goes all the way down to what the local docks and what the ports are doing. So we look at drivers from like the ports of Long Beach, the ports of Los Angeles, which represents any given year about 30 to 40% of international trade through the US. So we're buying a lot in the Southwest, primarily Southern California for a lot of those drivers, as well as the Texas Triangle. We really like the imports through the Texas uh, you know, infrastructure there and for those metros, because not just that, it also lets us kind of tap into the second half which is manufacturing. Mm. That's the other side. One is imports, it's distribution. You're using warehousing to kind of navigate a lot of the goods and, and uh, therefore the services. The other half is manufacturing. So we dove in a little bit about China in our previous discussion. If manufacturing in China is on the downswing, then that means it's either gonna go to other low cost labor countries or maybe the calculus now is that it needs to be a lot closer that maybe the U.S. can't budget, U.S. companies can't budget for 60 days of waiting for goods and services to get from overseas. And maybe it needs to be closer. And maybe the efficiency of U.S. labor or Mexican labor, because the uh, the Mexican manufacturing industry is booming right now. Between those two things, we've seen a consistent trend of efficiencies that actually that actually place production in many U.S. markets and Mexican markets cheaper than it is in China today. Wow. Say that right again. Now. That's crazy. Many industries in manufacturing today, it's cheaper for them all in right now as we sit today, not in the future, today. It's cheaper for them to produce in the U.S. and Mexico today than it is to produce in China and bring over. Why? One, it's not the labor cost. We'll start there. Okay, because China still has cheaper labor than the U.S., although there's been a 15x increase in labor costs since the year 2000, plus or minus. But China's efficiency with their manufacturing has only increased 3x during that same period of time. So there's a mismatch where the cost of labor mm -hmm. has increased so much more than the efficiency with what they're doing. And the, do you, when you're talking about efficiency, are you talking about mechanization? Are you talking about AI? Are you talking about systems and technology? What creates efficiencies to that level? So it's a little bit of all of the above. That's those technologies and those uh, huge advancements that you just added. And, and, you know, rightfully so with a lot of that being in the news, 
frankly, the bet by most people on that side with robotics and AI is that the U.S. is light years ahead of China. Mm. And so not only that, Mexico, as our closest trade partner, our neighbor, we share a border, and they have cheaper labor than the U.S. So mm. if you take U.S. efficiency and you take U.S. high-end manufacturing and you add that with a Mexican labor force and you take that just below the border, you have a pretty powerful combination where we are already more efficient than China with how, you, how we manufacture, then it's cheaper and it's next day. You can throw these, you can throw the goods and services on trucks instead of boats. So all in, we're seeing a huge shift away from China to the US for manufacturing, which on our side, we are betting and leaning into with Southern manufacturing markets on the coasts. Okay, this is a little bit of a departure about assets yeah. and investment, but I have to ask, because I know you've thought about it, because you do your homework. What impact do you think that will have on immigration? Well, I'll say this. Um, I I have been, I'm politically like right in the middle. So I, this is not a, this is a critique of both sides. You know, frankly, I think both sides have, have missed the mark on immigration so ridiculously that nobody's having the real conversation where we are trying to achieve in the U.S. If we're smart, we are trying to take the best and the brightest from other countries. You know who else does this is the Socialist Republic of Canada. Right. So I say that half jokingly. I love Canadians. I have many, you know, dear Canadian friends and they have a huge economy. But what Canada does with immigration is they say, look, if you can demonstrate a high level of schooling, of achievement or whatever, you get fast tracked for the immigration status, for fast track through the immigration process. In the U.S., we have such a mess of red tape and political nonsense. We are completely missing the boat on this. As a matter of fact, we talked demographics last time. Here's a demographic shift for you. If we took out the immigration from the U.S., what we'd end up with is a actual loss of population. That's not good. With immigration, we're slightly at or above a net zero, where we're actually growing as a population. So not only do we need it demographically, but we also, if we structure this possible, if we structure this properly, we can attract the top talent in the world, which we already do accidentally, despite ourselves, right? If we put a good immigration in place and both sides can get together and say, this is for the benefit of the country, then we can end up with a situation where we have the best manufacturing industry that we've ever had. We have the best partnerships with North American uh, fellow countries that we've ever had. And we steal the best talent from all the other nations to bring them here and educate them and get them here, adding their value. That's what I see as the perfect storm. Except that the last two things do seem like they're at odds. If we're going to have great international relationships, yet we're draining all their talent, I think that could complicate things. You know, if, if if other countries are trying to grow and to grow their economies, then there could be some there could be a rift there. I don't know. What do you think? So I would say that if we. Maybe that sounded malicious, like we are targeting their like we want to steal their best people. I mean it in a way of attracting them, saying, mm -hmm. hey, we are such, you know, oh, de-dollarization. The U.S. is crumbling. These are ridiculous headlines. If you look at any of the drivers of versus the US versus any other country in the world. So if we can, we already attract the top talent that wants to be here in many ways. If we can give the top talent globally a place to thrive, 
and really be able to reinvigorate the American dream and give them a shot at being able to achieve things here. That's really what I'm talking about, like opening it up for the best and the brightest to have an opportunity where they can fast track and be in here adding value in a really big way. So I'm super pro-immigration, just to be clear, and not because it's a political thing. Again, I, I think both sides are wrong on this issue. I think it's just economically and strategically and demographically the right thing for the U.S. to figure this out in a good way. Yeah. An example is that I was reading an article recently about, you know, a year ago in the summer, Congress passed a very significant bill called the CHIPS Act, bringing um, all production and development of semiconductors on U.S. soil. Ironically, there's a lot of thought around that it will be foreign workers that are going to fuel these these trained, skilled foreign workers um, that are going to be fueling these different fabs around the U.S., which is translated into our business is a demand for housing and not purchasing, but for apartments. So it's interesting to look at the trends and to look at, you know, the different asset classes and how they can come come up under the supporting industries uh, that will demand or I guess be, you know, be an invitation for the skilled trained worker that are international. Absolutely. So you guys are looking at the same drivers and to really understand, I think most people miss what you're talking about right now when they're going to the investment side and they don't realize that there's big drivers that are decade plus investment opportunities for guys like you and multifamily to take advantage and offer that to your investors and create value for the uh, residents as well. Mm hmm. Okay, I'm going to shift a little bit and, and talk about investors because, well, number one, I'm curious where the name Saint Investment came from before I ask my next question. That's a great question. So most people don't most people don't ask this, but I do love. Um, so we reached a point where we were buying a lot of debt and we buy mortgages that usually have some issues, right? Not a lot of issues, very minor issues. But let's take a recent example as we would buy a mortgage from, let's say, a family that lives in the home that missed, say, six months of payments during COVID. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was COVID, right? Most of these, the government mandated closures of businesses. So for a family to miss payments during COVID is like, yeah, of course. Of course, that's all over the place. The difference with where we're at today is that most banks didn't push for foreclosure, rightfully so. And there's mandates to block that. And mm -hmm. there's many great things that if the government shuts down the, the entire country, they should protect freaking citizens, right? Right. That said, we step in very like our business model from the from the roots is to buy mortgages with slight problems, to reach out to the borrowers and to negotiate and set the borrowers up on a loan modification that provides a long term investment for them where they're in their homes. They're setting that up in a positive way. So Saint steps in where we really can create a win win win. We work with the banks and we say, you can't sell this debt as is because you want to sell 10,000 loans at a time. Mm -hmm. This loan has little problems that make it not pristine, sterling. It has any, It's something subpar in just the rating of this because it has missed payments. So we'll step in and purchase at a discount. Then we can personally work with the borrower and say, look, what's the problem? Is it the payment amount? Is it you just can't pay this balance down? How can we help you? We can do things like extend their mortgage, et cetera, to keep them in their home and then provide a return that the third win is our investors make a good return. Mm -hmm. So between the bank working with people like us that can purchase things and get them off their books so they can get back to lending, which is what they're really great at. And then the borrower, they get to stay in their home and they get this amazing opportunity to keep the house instead of a foreclosure. 
And then the third is happy investors with a great return. That's where Saint came from is like really just trying to do the right thing and literally create a business model that makes a win-win situation because we have been on the distress side and it's been a lot dicier in different models that we've worked with. So Got we really it. like this. It makes us feel a little bit better. I like that. I like that. Okay. Speaking of investors, um, you mentioned before investor sentiment. I think you were talking on a macro level, but I'd love to hear has in your investor base, how many, what is your investor base? How many investors actively do you have? Oh, we've worked with well over a hundred investors. Okay. And do you feel that their sentiment, what they are up for investing in has changed or has it stayed the same in the last, let's call it two years? Oh my gosh. It's changed drastically in the, you know, the course of two years. That's for sure. Uh, again, where we, you know, we bought mortgages kind of as a, we really liked the income play of it. We really liked we could purchase at a discount, but we were kind of syndication focused for so long. Our investors came to us really and just said, look, we really, we've made a lot of money. We're really happy. We trust you guys. We know you guys. The issue is I don't want to give you money for five to 10 years, right? I don't want my money anywhere for five to 10 years. What can you guys put together that's a more flexible model that's more stable, that's safer, that's not like, market conditions and leasing concerns and da, da, da. so we went to the drawing board and that's what we did to put together the income fund that we have so okay. it was literally a direct response to investors coming to us with that so the sentiment we've seen to answer your question directly is not that there's less money or things are off you know being pulled off of the field and onto the sidelines we're seeing people trying to shift away from a lot of different things I think a lot of people have fat lips from the from the stock market. Today it's booming, but the volatility that got to us, you know, got us here today is not lost on a lot of older investors that say, I saw my net worth drop by 46% during COVID. They didn't forget that. A hundred percent. So a little bit of I, all the above. I would agree. I mean, just to support what you're saying is that we're seeing some investor, not only investor sentiment, but the, the waters that we're navigating as investment you know, managers is that we have a lot higher interest rates, at least on the syndication side. So I know you're dealing with different dynamics on the debt side. So we're as a solution, kind of we're trying to provide different different products, investment products. So you have a wealth generation and a wealth preservation product it can kind of cater to whatever generation has the stomach for, you know, for what those things entail. But the wealth preservation really is attractive, I think, to people who have, you know, lost money in the syndication world, their their distributions have been paused, they're, they're feeling what the weight feels like to, um, to have your NOI kind of drop so dramatically. And so to offer something that has lower risk, um, but potentially lower IRR is still as appealing as what we were offering before. So I think that's probably what you're also experiencing with investor sentiment. Plus the fact that you said that a lot of your investors are in the boomer generation. Absolutely. So it's it's exactly that is I get asked one of the most common questions. I do take some investor calls because I just want to connect with our kind of bigger investors or talk to new, you know, new investors that are interested uh, so on some of those calls, the biggest question I get is, well, so what, like, you don't, you know, you don't think uh, real estate has, you know, a lot of legs right now. I'm like, let me be clear. I'm incredibly bullish on real estate in certain segments. It's, you know, certain well-chosen asset classes, extremely bullish on certain asset classes and extremely bullish on long-term um, fixed income plays. 
I think it's both. Mm -hmm. And I think we've learned that that is the balance that we need to see. That's what I'm doing personally. So to me, when I get the question, I go, look, well, what's your time horizon? Is it if it's five to 10 years and you're working with a really good operator and they have a long track record and they know what they're doing, then I think that is a great investment to buy a, into a really good asset. If the time horizon's a lot less and you're a little more scared of the market dynamics overall, then I think fixed income is an interesting approach to look into. So mm -hmm. to me, to be clear, I'm bullish on both, but mm -hmm. it's really about the investor where they're at. Our yeah. investors, like you said, are a little bit older. Most of them are leaning towards more flexibility with more consistency. Mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, what are your hold periods for your industrial projects? Our industrial projects are the syndication model. So they're five to 10 years. Five for to our 10. income fund, it's 12 months. And after that, people can get their money back in 90 days. So we can say, look, you'll make a lot more over here, most likely on the syndication side, but over here, you can get your money back in 90 days. So it's right. it's really a barbell approach. It's right. Adjusted really return. That's right. And I think something you said in the previous episode too, is just realizing in the last real estate cycle that we're no longer in, there was some serious tailwinds that we all benefited from. And I think it caused us to forget the level of risk that we actually were taking. And so we benefited from that. And yet we were kind of oblivious to the risk. Well, now the interest rates are up. And so, you know, what's penciling is a little different. And so if we can mitigate risk and some offer different investment opportunities on that risk reward spectrum, I think it's adding value to our investors as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. The rate, the rates, uh, the rate rebalancing will be an interesting trend that we'll see, I think. Mm -hmm. Would love to hear kind of one of your lessons learned. You said you've been in this business for 20 years. You got in using scrappy tactics, which I love, but yet are classically trained. And if you want to find out more about that, listen to the previous episode, working with family offices, institutional type capital. Tell me of an example of a deal that you were very scared wasn't going to work and how it turned around or just give us a story that we can learn from, from your mistakes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I love seeing the worst because it teaches you about the best. I really believe that. So the most, I mean, I could talk about a lot of bloody moments where, you know, I got a black eye or fat lip from the market or from different things that went on. Um, I would say the number one, in the more recent era, in the, in the more recent era, the number one most difficult time that we went through was during COVID, we hit a point where I think at the time we had, I don't know, 70, uh, 70 different uh, tenants, which for industrial, you know, we have other things in there. We have some retail, we had some mixed use in there, but 70 tenants. And we reached a point where our overall accounts pay, or our overall accounts receivable, meaning people that were late our aging report, our aging amounts reports, we're in the seven figures, multiple seven figures. That's a scary wow. place to be across mm -hmm. a portfolio. Uh, I mean, these equal multiple percentages of our overall assets under management. So these are scary numbers that when you understand the real true depth of what this looked like. And on our side, we had to have a lot of hard discussions, just like everyone during that period of time. But the biggest thing that we did was how do we turn a really bad situation into something that we could benefit from. So we really looked across the board, everybody's saying that they're, the sky's falling, their business is gonna fail. Um, and so we just said, look, the two questions that we have, 
are how do we work directly to make a you know a good out of a bad kind of the you know the saint the saint idea right like how do we turn this around in a way that actually benefits us and the tenant and then the second is how do we shift into the market demographic or excuse me how do we shift into the market instead of against the market how do we you know go with the tide instead of against the tide which could, so, them could be considered even riskier but i think if you're on in the inside you know what you have to do Absolutely. And so the first is, how did we turn something bad into something good? We reached out to every tenant, every single tenant that said, we're having this issue. We're not going to be paying rent. Screw you. Or can you help us? You know, it was a wide spectrum. We just reached out and just said, look, what are you asking for? We're here. Pens down. We're not, you know, we're not in collections. We're just asking you, what are you asking us for? What specifically, right? Uh, we need help with rent. Okay, what's that look like, right? Well, uh, well, we don't want to pay rent right now because this, and there's all these scary things. And hey, we agree. Are you asking for three months? Are you asking for six months? Are you asking for, what are you asking for? So what we did was we worked with every single tenant that was asking. And we said, show us your financials. Don't be full of shit, first off, right? Let's make sure, excuse my friend. Don't be full of it. Show us your financials. Sorry, I don't know, you know, the policy. So don't, show us your financials. Don't BS us. And if you're not full of crap, then we'll work with you and we'll put together a game plan. But we're going to renew your lease. So what we did was we said, look, we'll give you three, six, nine months of below market, lower rent, no rent, whatever it is. But you're going to extend your lease by three, four five years. So what that does for all of us is it says, look, you're either going to fail or you're not. You're worried about that. So are we. We're betting on your success together. So what that did was it it gave us a huge uh, front side where we, or excuse me, a huge backside where we loaded a relationship together and we created the largest leasing year that we've ever had at Saint with upside, with good increases on rent, all the stuff. And we said, look, if you survive, we want to be uh, with you on that journey and we want a long relationship. And if you don't, we're here to work with you along the way to make sure we do everything that we can to make sure you do survive. So we had a massive leasing year, great beneficial leases for everybody. A lot of great terms there. The second thing we did was we started selling off assets that we we really dug into the economics, like I said earlier. And we said, what assets have legs here over the next decade and what don't? Not COVID, decade, right? And we sold off. I mean, we went through a year, 18 months of the largest 1031 exchange uh, situation that we've ever had. And our acquisitions guy, a family member, my dad works with us on acquisitions. He's a killer, right? He's like the best deals, you know, best deal guy I've ever met in my life. And so he was finding deals. We were working on deals. We had great things going at a time where everybody else was having a problem. We were finding deals that were fantastic. You have Italian blood. I'm sure he was at the negotiating table just crushing it, right? <laughs> we try to make everybody feel like they won. I'll just put it that way, but yeah. not easy to deal with. We are not known as uh, the... Uh, uh, easiest buyer sometimes, but we always have the cash. We always perform. So yeah. that's the balance here. Yeah. I love the story. I love the story because it really was, uh, you know, integrous, your, your desire to be a saint to kind of create a win-win. So you're winning in terms of you're not, the bottom's not falling out and just losing rent or your tenants and just running them off because then not only are you out those, those months of rent, you're also, you have a vacancy that you're probably not going to be able to fill in the very near future. So Love the creativity. That's brilliant. Um, curious then, how did those tenants respond? What was the relationship like? 
Did some of them just say, screw you, and they left anyway? What percentage stayed and kind of did the workout with you? So, yes, all of it. But um, what I'll say <laughs> is this. When they said, screw you, we knew they weren't real. Does that make sense? So it's like, um, you know, at that time in retail, I was connected to the retail industry quite a bit for many years. We've gone away from that. I still have dear friends there. The retail industry, something weird happened. Previously, class A retail and class C retail, it was like everyone frowned on class C and everyone won class A. What happened was all the class A retailers send legal letters to landlords and they said, we're not paying. And if you have a problem, come sue us, right? Those were the Cheesecake Factories, the Tudor Times, big national brands. But the class C tenants, the ones in working class markets, you said, look, we have, and we have a lot of those. We just reaching out said, look, we want to work with you. We're trying to help you. If you keep in touch, we can make this work. Class C retail was one of the shining stars of the COVID era. So much irony in that. There's so much irony. Everyone is like only lease to reliable tenants who are class A, who have the backing. And what you're saying completely debunks that in this situation. Phenomenal. So when people send us legal letters, we're like, come on, guys. Like, we feel very comfortable in court. We don't like it. But, you know, if, you, if that's how you're going to set the table, then we're, we accept your relationship terms, right? So the people that reached out and wanted to work with us, we gave amazing terms. Like, we did everything we could to keep them in. Their success rate was probably 80, 90%. Amazing. You know, 80, 90% of our businesses likely survived COVID. Whereas the top guys that were jerking us around and fighting us, we just said, okay, then it's every dollar. And you're gonna you're gonna be able to navigate uh, by just jerking us around with some some lawsuit stuff, but we're gonna collect on you guys because we came to the table respectfully. So we got at ninety plus percent of our collections also from those people. So overall, we navigated that as a tough time, but that was by far, and we didn't miss a single payment to investors during that period. So you want to talk about a dark period where um, it was like a lot of things could have went south. That was one of the worst periods we've ever had. And I'm really proud of our team. I'm really proud of our acquisitions. I'm proud of our asset management that we were able to turn that around. So that was a tough period. Wow. Congratulations for for the Saint-like workout. Love it. (laughs) True to your name. Tell us a little bit about what you do in your spare time when you're not doing acquisitions and managing properties and doing workouts with tenants. Yeah, I. uh, so I have three kids. So I try to, I work a lot of hours, but, uh, you know, huge Italian family. Um, I spend a ton of time with my kids, try to get them in sports. I grew up fighting. So my kids are in jujitsu and, you know, they do like little soccer stuff and they do all this. So I'm, I'm just trying to be as much of super dad as I can be on the, on the schedule and uh, try and get the gym in every day and, and do that as well. Honestly, we have a very streamlined life at this point, because if you don't with three kids, then you're going to lose your mind. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the same thing. I hit the gym in the morning. I'm in the office for as long as I can be. And I spend my nights with my kids and my weekends as much as I can. So uh, not a whole lot of uh, extracurriculars, but I read a ton voraciously, aggressively. I love books. I love education. Um, okay, top book that you've read in recent months. Oh, let's see. Um, right now we're talking a lot. Our team's grown a lot this year. Our team's grown by, I don't know, 20, 20, 30% this year. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of culture. So we're doing, we're dealing with a lot of um, cultural issues and incentive systems and, and things like that. You know, we have a virtual team, so we're leaning into that quite a bit. And then, um, you know, if you want to talk about like high level books, 
I, uh, I spent a lot of time researching just the best books of all time. Cause I was like, I've read the same crap over and over. That's like the newer stuff. What are the ultimate classics? So I just read um, Stephen Hawking. He has a book called the big questions of the universe. He talks mm. about, is there a God? What are black holes? Is time travel possible? Just like weird dorky sci-fi stuff that I geek out on. So I'm reading, I'm trying to read the ultimate best books of all time, just to fill my head with like the best ideas. So as we go into life that you have a good focal point. So I spent a lot of time on that too, education. Love that. Well, how can people find you, Nick? The best way that we can add value to the audience and give them more information on economics and strategy, et cetera, is at saintinvestment.com slash resources. We have a ton of webinars that we do regularly where we break down step-by-step investment strategies and a ton of economic analysis that they'll find interesting. Fantastic. I'm going to find my way to your website and benefit yeah. those myself. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Really grateful to learn from you. You've added a ton of value. Dina, thank you so much. I had a ton of fun and I'm excited to uh, maybe be on in the future. We can pick the conversation back up. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.